Now I want to read from Zechariah uh, and chapter 4. Zechariah and chapter 4. That's on page uh, 944, 944 in the Church Bible. And uh, I'm, I am actually preaching from Zechariah 4 verse, verse 10. But I, I'd like to read um, from verse 1. And uh, Zechariah is, is this uh, amazing prophetic book in, in the Old Testament, talking not only about the near future for the people of Israel. Um, in the 4th and 3rd centuries BC, the, 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 uh, Israel was being rebuilt, restored. The temple was uh, being rebuilt. Um, and uh, Zechariah and Haggai, two prophets, were were um, instrumental in encouraging the people in their, in their task to rebuild um, Israel. It, it, the whole place had been devastated, firstly by the Assyrian onslaught, um, um, and then the, uh, the Babylonian invasion of, uh, of Judah and the southern kingdom had left the place a, a desolate place, and the, uh, Jerusalem a rubble, and the temple just a rubble within the rubble. Um, the book of Zechariah gives uh, messages from God through Zechariah to the people of Israel in those days about how God was going to bless them and help them to rebuild, but also has these marvelous uh, predictions about the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ himself, many centuries later, coming and fulfilling these prophecies. But anyway, we're going to read from uh, chapter 4. And uh, an angel has been revealing various things to Zechariah. The angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And by the way, that's what it's like, actually, when, when the word of God comes alive to us. We suddenly feel, you know, that we're alive. God is speaking to us. And that's how the word of God should, uh, should uh, strike us. And he said to me, what do you see? Uh, so I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on the left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what, are, what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel was the, was the governor, uh, the leader of um, the people of Israel at that time. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Not by political power, not by physical strength, not by um, people's greatness of people's minds, not by human energy or effort or power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Now that does sound like it's in code. Well, it is in a kind of code, basically. Because the situation was this. Zerubbabel's task was to help to rebuild Jerusalem, but above all, to start with, to rebuild the temple. The temple was a great pile of rubble, but not only was he facing uh, the problem of, well, how do you turn rubble into a, 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 a great temple, but also there were all kinds of opposition to him, a great mountain of opponents that we'll think about. But actually, the message to Zerubbabel was, grace, grace. God's favor and love and compassion is upon you and you are going to be able to do it. You're going to be able to lead the people in this great project. 
Anyway, verse uh, 8. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundations of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord God of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised a day of small things shall rejoice, and shall see the plumb line in the hands of Zerubbabel. Okay, I just now um, want to give a few notices out. Um, on Monday, we have a prayer meeting, um, 7.30, in, he, uh, in, in the church, uh, to which we, everybody is really welcome. Uh, and we also have a, a kind of uh, uh, a Zoom link to it. So those of you who would like to listen on Zoom can get the link um, from uh, one of us later. Um, Wednesday, we have a Bible study. Uh, similar situation. Uh, it'll be online on YouTube, uh, the Bible study, but also a Zoom discussion afterwards. Um, there's no meeting on Thursday for Henry's discussion group. Um, Henry and Vicky are on uh, holiday at the moment. Um, Friday, uh, there's no young adults group either during, uh, during the summer break. Um, but Sunday, we have a special guest service, uh, an evangelistic guest service to bring... Uh, uh, friends along to, family along to, and we have a meal afterwards. And of course, also we will be um, uh, uh, also saying uh, goodbye to Paul as well, and uh, who is our assistant, uh, uh, the, the assistant pastor, uh, the student pastor, I suppose we'd call him. But he's been really basically the assistant pastor for the past. Um, Three years, yeah, it's a long time really. So uh, anyway, uh, hopefully we'll all be along to that and obviously many more of us too. Is there anybody, anything else anybody else would like to say or to share? Um, okay. Um, I'd like us uh, to um, turn back please to the book of Zechariah if you haven't, uh, haven't left it open. And I'm going to pray as I look into uh, this word. Let's pray. O Lord, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Open our ears, Lord, to hear them. And grant, Lord, you will stir us up to do what you, what you speak to us about, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I've mentioned a bit of the background about um, the, book of, uh, the book of Zechariah. And indeed, actually, it's, it, uh, there, there, are, there are four books that are intertwined. There's the book of Zechariah, a, 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 a quite a short prophetic book. There's the book of Haggai, which is an even shorter prophetic book. And then there's Ezra and Nehemiah, which are two history books, which actually, in the Jewish Bible, are all part of one, uh, one, one book. Ezra and Nehemiah, but in our Bibles they're two separate books. But actually they deal with these same circumstances, these same, uh, um, um, same events of the return of, of um, 40,000 or so people from exile in Babylon. Um, and uh, all of these, these people coming back to the, to the, uh, the, the, the uh, land of Israel, which had been devastated, and where they were trying to rebuild the, the worship of God, the religion that Moses had revealed, and trying to uh, also, if you like, rebuild their lives, their home lives too. Now, actually, the background to basically to Zechariah and Haggai's ministry, though, is one of, of, of discouragement. You see, it worked like this. 
God moved the heart of, of Cyrus, who was the emperor of, of Persia, the king of Persia, um, to allow the Jewish people to return. Actually, it was part of his in, international policy. He, he uh, under the mercy of God, introduced a very tolerant view of religion. And whereas um, uh, the Jewish people had, had been forced out of their homeland and not allowed to practice their religion in their homeland, they were allowed to practice it in Babylon, no uh, religions actually had the freedom of movement to move back to their own lands. But Cyrus's policy was to give an edict to allow people to return to their homelands. And under Zerubbabel, um, uh, a prince of Judah, someone from the line of David, led 40,000 or so people back um, with Joshua, his high priest, back uh, to, the, to, to uh, Jerusalem in particular, and there they laid the foundations for the temple. But actually, they were surrounded by discouragements, sabotage, people who wanted, didn't want the Jews in their own home worshipping God according to the law of Moses. And um, they, really, they really were discouraged. Um, I'm not going to ask you to turn up Ezra chapter 4, but you know, maybe if you... Um, if you're interested in researching this, don't know the story, you could do this on some other occasion. But basically, we're told in Ezra chapter 4 that groups are, that were living around and about Jerusalem are making big trouble for the uh, returned exiles. So we're told in, in chapter 4 verse 1, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they firstly, they approached them and basically said, let's build with you and we'll worship together. Now, there's, uh, the very fact that they were uh, called the adversaries implies that this may have been a, a trick, you know, to try to, to infiltrate and then perhaps, and then perhaps fight against them. Uh, or it may simply have been a way of, of simply trying to uh, uh, annul and dilute their threat by, uh, you know, kind of taking over the project. But either way, Zerubbabel and Jeshua, uh, Joshua the high priest, and the rest of the heads basically told them, You've got, this, isn't, this isn't your project. This is nothing to do with you. We've been told to do this by Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us, and the Lord God has given us this, this project. But we then told in verse 4 of Ezra, chapter 4, the people... These peoples, these people of the land around and about, discouraged the people and made them afraid to build. And in fact, they then went on um, to contact, having, having probably caused uh, uh, various kinds of, of uh, acts of violence upon them, we know that they then wrote an accusation um, to the new king, um, Ahasuerus, and uh, then later on to Ataturxes. And they basically... They, they wrote to the, 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 the central um, bureaucracy in, uh, in Persia and were able to get this, these uh, um, bureaucrats to convince the king to stop any more, um, any more rebuilding of the city. And we're told that Ataturk's letter in verse 23 was read before uh, the people and uh, the work of the house of God stopped. It ceased. Now, I want us to notice this. Firstly, it's a, a Christian application straight away. When God sets Christians into the church, 
He doesn't just bring you into salvation. He brings you into a project, into a work. The great work of, of the Lord Jesus Christ is the spread of the kingdom of God. And both when Jesus was on earth, he called his disciples to spread the kingdom of God. And of course, when he left the earth, he, he, he told his disciples, you know, go into all the world and, and preach the gospel. Make disciples of all nations. Teaching them to, to obey everything I've commanded you, which included this command uh, to spread the kingdom. Now, the devil often uses direct persecution like we have here uh, with, the, um, with the people of the land trying to prevent the Jews building the temple. We often have the devil himself persecuting and, dis- and trying to discourage Christians. It happens down the centuries. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, uh, the Lord Jesus has a message for the churches. And in, in Revelation, I'll just uh, read the passage. Revelation chapter 2, relatively easy to find, the last book in the, in the Bible. In Revelation chapter 2, he's writing um, uh, to the church in Smyrna. And uh, he, he says this, uh, verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander who say that they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Revelation is quite clear. The, the devil is ultimately behind persecution. Obviously, there's a, a maelstrom of evil within human, uh, human hearts, and when someone is a religious fanatic, yes, that his own inferiority complexes, his own fanaticism, his own hatred and bitterness against mankind, that comes out. But actually directing it, there is the devil. And, uh, you know, we may find ourselves in a situation where we basically feel, well, I can't, I can't, I can't take this. And we may stop our are, uh, are working for the Lord. But I, I want us to notice this, that in Zechariah chapter 4 and verse, and verse 10, the message, the message for the, the people of Israel was this. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. And what this is saying is, is that there are people that oppose the work of God. Oppose the beginnings of the work of God in people. Like, for instance, uh, uh, these, uh, these uh, adversaries in the land. To them, they mocked and laughed at Zerubbabel as he led this team of workers to try to lay the foundation of the temple. It's clear that uh, to, to those who are wanting to, to get rid of them... They're pathetic. They're useless. What a project. How Fancy trying to build a temple in the midst of rubble. They opposed it. They persecuted. They tried to destroy them. And indeed, the people of Israel may have felt when it got to, finally, after, after a, period, a period of months, that the actual, the, the Persian, the new Persian king uh, actually passed a decree saying, you will not build at that point in time, they may have thought, well, 
it is a pathetic project. We've got all this, all this opposition. Who are we? Who is Zerubbabel? We're just nobodies. And all we've got is this foundation stone to, the tem- to, this, to this temple we're going to build and the beginning of our project, the foundation stones, but, but nothing more. But God says that those who despise, those who despise the day of small things are going to have a big surprise. Now, I don't want to go into the details of the translation issues on verse 10, but essentially it, this may be either a message to the people of, of Israel saying that you who have despised the day of small things um, as, as Israelites and have, have decided that you know it, it's not worth doing, we can't do it, who are discouraged... Well, one day you're going to be amazed and you're going to rejoice. Now, it could mean that, or it could mean that actually um, those who have despised the day of small things are, in fact, the opponents themselves. And where it says, you shall rejoice, it's talking about um, the seven, which are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth, meaning God rejoices. At, although men despise small little things, small beginnings, God himself rejoices in those, little, in, those, in those beginnings. But either way, I want to concentrate on this thing that actually when we're going through persecution, when we're going, seeking to serve the Lord on his project of extending the kingdom of God, we can be discouraged. We can start to think, is it worth it? We can start to go round and round our circles. We're trying to stand up for God in our generation, but really, is it worth it at all? Now, how small and insignificant would the, uh, the, the Protestants who lived in Essex uh, 400 and odd years ago, who, who died, um, I think it was it the 460-something anniversary last Sunday. I can't remember the actual, actual number of years. But there were, there were, I think there were 14 or 15 died in Stratford. Why? Well, because Mary came to, to power, who was a Catholic. There had been six years of, of uh, freedom for the gospel in this country after Henry VIII died. And there had been, uh, been lots and lots of, of, um, and lots of people that became Christians and would no longer um, follow Catholic teaching. And over, Mary, when she came to power, gathered from up and down the country and different places in the country burnt 300 individuals and the list of people that were burnt you know in, in the anniversary last week uh, last week were I'm, I'm just giving a, a few a few examples of their ages one was from Waltham Cross he was 24 uh, he was a smithy uh, another was a servant he was 24 Lawrence Purnham he was from Holderston he was 22 there was a labourer called John Derryfell. He was an old one. He was 52. And Edmund Hurst, a labourer, was 50. There was another weaver who was 36. And George Searle, a tailor, was 20. Most of them were in their 20s. There was a woman um, called Elizabeth Pepper who was 30. She was a wife. And there was another, another married woman who died at the age of 26 who was pregnant when she was burnt. Now, each of these men and women were just nobodies. <laughs> they were little people. But they were selected because they were, they were considered to be a threat. Mary wanted to prove Catholicism to be completely 
uh, to complete the truth and wanted to show, uh, I suppose, to warn people not to actually um, uh, to, 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 to read the Bible and so on. And here are these little people, servant, tailor, laborer, weeks being harangued and interrogated and told, look, if you give up believing in the Bible and believing in Jesus for your salvation, you'll go free. And every one of these little people refused. Actually, at one point, just before they were about to be burnt alive, um, one of the sheriffs did a little trick, cause, and, and he basically took half of them and he said, look, um, half, the other half, they've all given up. They've all given up believing in Jesus. So, uh, John uh, and Henry and Thomas, why don't you give up as well? There's no point you going and being burnt alive. Everybody's given up. Well, actually, they wouldn't. They trusted in Christ. And even though they were small people, they were little people, and, and if I guess they might have said to themselves, well, right, it's not going to make any difference what I, to history. What's going to happen? 20,000 people gathered to watch them burn. And they were given the chance before they were actually tied to the, to the stake uh, to give up. But no, they didn't. Uh, the, the, the women were allowed to actually run into the fire. They weren't bound to the, to the stake. And they embraced the stake, as it was called. They suffered and they died. Why? Because they didn't despise the day of small things. They didn't underrate what really mattered was their own faith in Christ, much more so the world. To the world, there were nobodies and nothings. This was a day of, of uh, simply Mary's wrath to show her power over, over the, her subjects. But no, they were faithful to God to death. We face persecution as Christians, but compared to that, it's nothing, is it? They might have felt like giving up, like the Israelites felt like giving up. A day that, oh no, the project's not worth it. It's not, you know, it's just a, it's, it, you know, it's not worth going on with this. But they didn't. And I, I want us to note that even amongst the people of Israel, um, there, it wasn't just persecution that caused them to despise what they were doing. Um, in Haggai 2.3, um, God speaks to the, to the people. This was roughly at about the same time Zechariah was preaching. And he said... God says through Haggai, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? In other words, there's some of you here in your 90s that remember the marvelous temple of Solomon in all its beauty and grandeur. It's massive. It was, it was massively bigger than this little temple they were building. And it was filled with gold and, massive, and tapestries and wonderful carvings. It was glorious. And how do you see this house now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Now here's the point. The people of Israel having returned from exile, some of them were thinking this. What are we doing? This is nothing. This is just going to be like a little shed compared to the glory of Solomon's temple. I mean the older people. But God challenges them. Who has despised the day of small things? God rejoices at the small things that are a prelude to a mighty victory. Now, this is, a, this is this principle that God takes the despised things of the world 
to shame the mighty. He takes the hopeless, foolish things of the world. And through those things, he brings salvation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of the Lord. Now, this starts, actually, with salvation itself. There may be someone listening online, there might be someone in the church tonight, who has never received the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour. Some people can spend their lives um, coming to church or praying, and, but that is an expression of their desire to do good things so that God is going to tick off all the good things they've done and they're going to be allowed into heaven. But the Bible says, no, Jesus Christ came into this world to save us. We cannot save ourselves. So we need to get ourselves right with God. We need to actually receive him as our saviour. The only one that can get us into heaven. He died so that we might have our hearts cleansed. Without him, our hearts remain filthy. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that means every single person, no matter how religious they are, no matter what effort you put into your life, your heart is stained by the darkness of selfishness, of lawlessness. The Bible says sin is lawlessness. And the lawlessness of a religious person is very different from the, religion, uh, from the lawlessness of a, of a worldly person. A worldly person may commit adultery. He might be involved in acts of violence and murder. She might be, she might be a thief. But the lawlessness of a religious person consists in, in pride. It consists in in hidden sins of the heart, fantasies of the heart. It consists actually in simply not loving God, but wanting to use God for our own, for our own purposes. But the Bible says, no, we must receive Jesus as our saviour. And he cleanses us, and he transforms us and changes us. Paul says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I'll say it to to anybody that's listening online. To confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord means, of course, not just lip service confessing. It doesn't mean, oh, you've just got to say Jesus is Lord. No, it means that you must mean in your heart that Jesus is Lord of your life and you confess it to the non-Christian world, indeed, to the point where you might even be killed. Confession for the early Christians uh, meant actually being prepared to have your head chopped off. They were called confessing Christians in the first two or three centuries that were prepared to tell the magistrates, yes, I am a Christian, okay, off you go, be tortured and then killed. We confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord, and we mean that every part of our life now is under his direction. We thank him for being our saviour, dying for our sins, and we seek his help uh, to serve him. We need to trust in him for our salvation, for our forgiveness of sins, to become a child of God. We need to be baptised, to confess with our, our, our mouth and uh, our action of baptism that we are our, our um, sinners. But the wonderful thing is, Paul says in that passage, 
There's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And I just ask you tonight, if, you, if you've never received Christ, he's, he's waiting to just pour out his riches, eternal life and complete forgiveness for all of your sins, a, a, a new relationship with the Father in heaven, eternal life forever. These are poured out upon you. If you call upon him, there is no doubt about this at all. The Bible says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, um, so let's get ourselves right with God. But let's also seek not to, um, uh, as God calls us to be Christians, to belittle or downgrade the project he's given us to do. People often have fantasies about what the Christian life is about or about even what church growth is about. Uh, we can have, like uh, pastors especially and preachers, can have, I suppose you could call it a Napoleon complex. You know, people have Napoleon complexes of people who fantasize that they're like a great general who is able to do the marvelous and wonderful things that Napoleon did as a general, win ma- mighty battles. And sometimes we can think that, oh yes, If God is with me, then thousands will be converted. There'll be this happening and that happening. And of course, all the glory goes to the preacher. But actually, the Bible doesn't even paint that picture of of church growth, um, of thousands and thousands of people becoming Christians regularly. Um, it It does happen from century to century. There are great outpourings of the Spirit, and there are thousands converted in a day. It happened on the day of Pentecost. Where thousands were converted in a day, and not just 3,000 and then 5,000, but that just was the men. But you've got um, lots of children and wives and everything. There were countless uh, you know, people in Jerusalem saved in just a matter of days from Pentecost onwards. But you know, in the, in the life of Paul, that never happened. Think about the, the, the churches that, Paul, um, that Paul's mission was involved in. The Philippian church was smaller than our church. I mean, smaller number, probably about the same size number of people we've got here tonight. Certainly smaller than the, the, the Sunday morning congregation we've got. And, and that was after a, you know, a, a year or two. It was still a small group of people he wrote his letter to the Philippians to. Uh, the Thessalonican church wasn't that big. Neither was the Corinthian church. It was only in hundreds. It wasn't like a mega church that people boast of today, thousands. And certainly it wasn't even the size of Spurgeon's church, which was four to 5,000 people. Paul was involved in the foundation work of this great Gentile mission that eventually resulted in hundreds of, well, certainly over the years, tens of millions of people becoming believers in Europe. But it started off with very small little congregations being planted by him. Compared to the day of Pentecost, Paul's Gentile mission was a day of small things. But was Paul thinking, oh, it's a day of small things, oh, no, no. oh, it's, we might as well give up because we've only got a few people? No. And in churches in Britain today, where there are small churches, we must understand that we're not to have fantasies of, of, of mega conversion. That is, that's in the hands of God, and no doubt he will send uh, in the future. As we pray to him for a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit, he may, he may send before Christ comes another great visitation upon Britain. But in our church situations, we need to understand that the Lord does not despise the small thing things at all. He rejoices in conversions one by one in a Sunday school. 
in little Bible studies, in open airs, in, in all the, wo- the work of small churches. Who is the one who despises these things? Well, actually, some of us do. M- many older people, like me, live in a nostalgic past. Oh, yeah, when I was young, the church was so strong. And, and the, the, you know, loads of people went to church, and they were, you know, it's a much better society. Well, actually, that's not my memory of, the, of, of society when I was 15. I'm 71, and I, I don't remember it like that at all. I remember a, a situation where Bible-believing Christians, evangelicals, were despised were despised, and they were despised especially by, by other people in the church that weren't evangelicals. Um, it wasn't a, a, a lovely moral society in the early 60s uh, and the 50s. There, were, there, was, there was sexual immorality, there was all, all kinds of, there was the occult, there was all the, the, the sins that people think, oh, they're modern ones. No, they're not. They've gone back, you go back to Victorian times. Britain, uh, London had, uh, had, had 100,000 prostitutes in it at the time of Spurgeon. So we're not to live in this a nostalgic past and think, oh, you know, today is the day of small things because it was so much better. That, that's one reason we do. But what it can do when we live in with those pictures of the past and or how weak the church is today is actually it can tempt us to become sluggards. The Bible says about the sluggard, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside, I'll be killed in the streets. An excuse for inactivity. Christians who, who, who are, are so focused on the opposition can sometimes be, become inhibited and ultimately not be doing the Lord's will. Go to the ant, sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise. She gathers. She gathers. She works. She works during the summer and gathers bit by bit. The ants work, work. Small, small they're hardly seen, but they're working. On, Wednesday, on the Wednesday Bible study, I mentioned a verse that actually has been with me all week. and um, It talks in Proverbs 13, 11, Wealth gained hastily by vapor or wealth gained by vapor, will dwindle. But whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Now that's an encouragement, of course, to, to diligence and to saving money, not wasting it. But it's also a warning against a fantasy about, oh, if I, if I could only have all of that happening, how oh, wonderful it would be. No. Little by little. Don't despise the gatherings of small gospel treasures. Little by little, we work, we pray, we seek to spread the gospel. But unfortunately, Christians often do despise these, this, this wonderful work of the spread of the kingdom. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like a seed scattered on the ground. Not like a, a, a great mountain, a juggernaut. It's like a seed, which, is, which goes, it grows quietly in the ground. First, the, first it sprouts and, and, and then it grows big, bigger and then there's a leaf and then there's a little and then the, finally there's a harvest. Many people are, are um, gripped by uh, the miraculous. Uh, and, and they say this is the way that we grow churches by displaying the miraculous. Healings, uh, prophecy, speaking in tongues and so on. What did Paul say? Paul says that Jews seek signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ and him crucified. We don't preach to people who shall come to hear uh, and see miracles. No, we say come and hear 
God speak through the gospel as Christ is lifted up. Now I don't suggest we, uh, uh, we uh, are horrible to people who claim to have prophecies, but I do say that they, are, they have to be accountable for what they prophesy. And so many people over the last 30 years have been claiming that God is sending an imminent revival, even put a date on it, and it never happens. They need to be audited for their crazed predictions, for their wild inaccuracies, which clearly were not from God, even though they claimed, uh, even though they claimed deeper prophets. They need to be held to account, I guess, because in, in a way they've diverted from the simple task of taking the gospel out, the word of God out, to our society. And so I just want to finish by uh, saying this. Let's not despise the small things, the, 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 the elements of Christian discipleship but let's be prepared to stand up for Christ and stand up for the truth of the gospel and the truth of the word of God in love come what may um, Revelation again the Lord Jesus said to the, to the um, church in Philadelphia Revelation 3 verse 7 and In fact, I'll, I'll, if you would like to look at it as I read it, Revelation 3 and verse 7. It's on page 1220. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I'll make them come down and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I've loved you. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I'll keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Now notice again, Jesus knows they have little power. And yet, though they have little power, their relationship with the Lord has consequences for eternity. Now may the Lord uh, help us not to despise the day of small things, but rather know that God is rejoicing in his preparations for blessings for the church and for the world in these days of small things.